Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to a weekly edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 8th, 2024. So one of the first articles um, I kind of walked through uh, today, Lee, was actually from Hacker News. And, you know, I did a traditional pivot to another article based on some of the references. But it was called Sea Turtle Cyber Espionage Campaign Targets Dutch IT and Telecom Companies. And I did pivot over to a PwC um, article that kind of talked more about their malware and things specifically. They use some reverse shells, but basically they seem to specialize uh, in a lot of DNS hijacking, which is always an interesting technique because they have to have some level of access to the people that can control the DNS uh, records that um, where those are registered. Uh, so there are some credential harvesting techniques they must utilize, or they control the EPP cert which is what you use to kind of register with the registrar if they're able to get their hands on that they're able to change it that way too so they they use a multitude of methods for trying to change that and what that allows them to do is then when people try to go to a legitimate website that you own it actually points to their website where they are either capturing credentials um which helps them perform further uh, recon type activities or they can distribute some hour depending on what lands on that page um, but the, the thing I thought was the most interesting outside the DNS hijacking, cause that's kind of hard to detect unless you're monitoring your own websites. Um, for instance, you know, where you expect them to resolve and that kind of thing, or you see less hits, like a huge drop in your average, maybe, um, someone's hijacking some of your stuff. Uh, but it was this first off the, uh, sea turtle group is they think associated with Turkey cause it seems to from past campaigns be really interested in Turkish interests and they traditionally target uh, North Africa and the Middle East. So the interesting thing about the reverse shell they use, they call it the snappy TCP reverse shell. And I think it's actually a, a fairly easy thing to try to um, pull data together to, to detect. Um, one is they uh, traditionally will use some sort of vulnerability or exploit to push up a, uh, bash script uh, that will then execute. So it's got to be some vulnerability that has your remote code execution capabilities. And then it will download the actual reverse shell binary via curl. So it's very easy to kind of spot when you see curl um, as a user agent, and especially when it's going directly to an IP. Because all the activity that um, was recorded in the, at least the PWC cover on that shell is basically that that method of curl to direct IP that the adversary owns. So, you know, I think those are common things people should be, you know, at least aware of or have ways to uh, dig into the data and look for those things. You know, it sounds like the biggest drive here was really espionage and intelligence gathering um, as far as what the long-term strategy, strategies are from what I was able to see weren't really depicted. But 
some easy things to look for, I think, to try to identify some of those behaviors. So what do you think? No, I completely agree. So one of the first things that I uh, noticed about this, uh, this malware, well, actually, I should say, the first thing I noticed about the article was the title and the pun that you completely stepped over. The, <laughs> it's called The Tortoise and the Malware, um, which <laughs> bums me out. <laughs> no, it's a good That's pun. That's why we brought you on the show. Right? <laughs> I'm here for comedic <laughs> relief. But no, the things that you said uh, already about the user agent, you know, it, it sticks out already. Is that normal in your environment? Is curl being used actively or does that stick out right away? And I understand that this is network traffic. So if you are like trying to hunt for stuff in the network traffic, there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of traffic going on. Um, but something simple as curl sticking out um, could be, uh, could stick out um, very easily, as well as the um, the IP address that it's heading to. If you're looking for anomalies based on that, that's something that you could look for as well. So if curl is still um, being actively used in your environment, then you could look at the other factors that exist when it comes to trying to decide what uh, anomalous is or what an anomaly is. Um, my one question that um, I may... You may not know the or you may know the answer, but it says that the content length is 45. I tried to think about how this would work, but is that always going to be over the network response? Um, is that, uh, that be boring? Or not will that necessarily? So, like, are you talking about when they did the curl specific? So, yeah, I think that's going to include like arguments and things. So depending on how you, you know, make that command or, you know, if it was an IP address and it was a URL, I mean, I think those content lengths could change, right? Um, okay. okay. But it is, I mean, I do like that you kind of brought that up because if you think about it, if the content length is fairly short, right? So you might be able to set like a, if it's less than 50 or, you know, 60 or something, uh, it might be another telling way that it might be an IP address too if, you're, if you don't have any specific parsing. For the yeah, you know, trying to pull the IP out or whatever in the arguments, you, that might be a way to help build some content if you're able to filter on that instead. For instance, okay, and that's because that kind of stuck out to me. That didn't seem like a normal, or I don't know. I guess in my inexperience, it didn't seem like it was a lot of data going through, and that there might be that might be uh, something like you said that would stick out a little bit more than. Uh, you yeah, I mean, obviously the response will be bigger because it'll be actually pulling the file, but that's just like the get request. Yeah, and then I guess you could always find that that low content length request using curl to a random IP and then see if there's any traffic coming from there to see if uh, successful communication happens. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of different things I think. I mean, I think the fact that curl is being utilized, I mean, I know administrators will use curl. Um, a lot of times, I don't think it ever goes to IP addresses very commonly, especially external. So I think that's a, obviously a big hit. Yeah, good point. Good point. I think what it mentions that the malware shared code with some uh, a GitHub repository, or that the reverse TCP shell has practically identical code to a publicly accessible GitHub repository, mm -hmm. um, which they actually reference, which kind of bums me out um, <laughs> because it's like. We're don't get me wrong. Research is an invaluable part of 
progress. But I feel like sometimes we're just creating something to not not just to create it, but without the thoughts and implications of what if this gets into the wrong hands, especially if it's like a public repository, right? I don't know. That... Yeah, but I mean, you can use the same logic for all, a lot of the publicly available like remote admin tools that are used legitimately. They get used illegitimately. I think that's just the nature yeah. of capabilities and tools. Like people want something to work because I mean, I feel like uh, yeah, Netcat was a very common reverse shell. But I feel like its purpose originally wasn't to be reverse shells. It was just to create easy access over the network. That's true. Maybe I'm just starting 2024 too jaded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why can't people just stop creating things adversaries can use, right? <laughs> a good article. Great article, though. Um, interesting malware. And of course, because it had a, uh, to do with Linux, I had to do some additional research. So I always appreciate that. Cool. So what do you got? So my first article was uh, by TRM Labs. And it's titled, North Korean Hackers Stole 600 Million in Crypto in 2023. That's a lot of money. And I can only imagine it came from a ton of victims. Um, right. But what blows my mind, and, and I know this is only part of, probably only a part of, uh, a piece of the puzzle, that North Korea is doing. And they can't just be stealing crypto to, uh, or, and of course, you know, this is North Korea. So they're evading, they're trying to evade sanctions. Uh, trade is restricted, so on. There's many different ways that they can get money. And th this is just one of them. I know $600 million is probably a lot of money, probably larger than some of the whole economies of some smaller countries. But to think about how they used to do it, how they used to have to target banks, how they have to use to target yeah. different entities. This just seems too easy. The article even calls out, it says, North Korea conducts nearly all of its attacks by compromising private keys and seed phrases, which are critical security elements of digital wallets. Hackers transfer the victim's digital assets to wallet addresses controlled by North Korean operatives. They are then swapped mostly for uh, US dollars or Tron or USDT or Tron and converted to hard currency using high volume OTC brokers. So I'm going to well, probably, probably the jaded 2024 already. <laughs> so I remember read or listening to a podcast or whatever the case may be talking about North Korea abusing the SWIFT system and targeting different banks. Uh, in transferring, uh, was it almost a billion dollars? I can't remember, but I think it was uh, another astronomical amount. But what happened was the, the banking system caught up to it and was able to stop it in time that only one chunk of the transfer was successful. And it was still in the millions, but the lower end, farther away from a billion. Um, I can't remember which one it was. But... That was banks. Those were high secure organizations. Here we have victims being, uh, whether it be cryptocurrency exchanges or personal users themselves, but we're they're being targeted that they and they may not have cybersecurity on their mind. They might be copy and pasting their seed phrases and putting out a text document, which is the equivalent of writing a username and password in notepad and saving that to your desktop or uh you know putting it under your keyboard but and this could this is what i'm gonna say is probably gonna 
anger some like crypto bros out there or whatever. Uh, but crypto is such an interesting currency um, because it has value because we put value on it. Um, and I'm, I, I will say this. I am no crypto or e uh, economy expert. Um, and I know that the U.S. dollar is kind of in the same boat because we're no yeah. longer backing it with gold. But if we just stop using cryptocurrency, <laughs> we could feasibly <laughs> stop set $600 million going to North Korea. Now, I know that I know they'll find another way around it, but they'll once again, they'll have to target different organizations that have more controls and more security in place versus someone who saw that uh, Bitcoin is, you know, approaching the $20,000 mark and they want to get a piece of it and they want to get rich quick and so on. It will make them have to target organizations that put security in place to protect people's money. And maybe, maybe it will be harder to launder. I, I don't know. But is that just a, just a crap take versus a hot take? Well, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so it's just one of those things where whatever way is easiest to make money when your motivation is making money. I mean, that's why cryptocurrency is very desirable to so many people. And that was what was interesting when you talked about how you know people that get their wallets and cryptocurrency stuff stolen, you know, that maybe aren't cybersecurity savvy. You also got to think they're probably you know working under the maybe a false pretense that cryptocurrency in itself is just safe naturally where it's really anonymous, but it's not necessarily like you still have to protect it like you would other assets that are important. Right. Um, so that might make them, you know, false sense of security in that aspect. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because one of the articles doesn't bring up too is how to handle ransomware, you know, and, and ransomware wouldn't be as prevalent if cryptocurrency didn't quite exist. And it's just based on how it's traded. So it's like, I feel like if you were able to do some more regulations or something and, and actually truly adopt it, maybe it would not, you know, be as such a thing. But, you know, I don't know. Just, I, uh, I don't, and I understand just stopping you in cryptocurrency is a pretty aggressive approach to it. But I mean, well, it's interesting how it was just kind of born out of like, hey, this is just a fun concept. And then people started putting money towards it. And then it basically represented money. So that just becoming, I mean, it's interesting when you look at markets. I remember when they were, a guy did a whole master's paper, I think, on like the economy of World of Warcraft and how, you know, it did mimic and there was controls of some of the economy and how the economy would shift based on certain things. I mean, so it's just interesting how those systems just kind of exist naturally when people support them in general. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And now that you bring up World of Warcraft, that actually cracks me up because at one time I, I kind of held the, oh, what was it called? The stock market in there. Not the stock market, the the, uh, the shop. Um, now you're making me draw a blank. I haven't, I haven't played in a while. Um, the auction house. Thank you. The auction house. I, I would go out and buy bags and resell them so that only my bags, and I would go weave them and I'd go buy bags. So that I like owned like a monopoly on it, but it's funny that, and that's a side story. But the fact that you could sell your account because people found it worth money as well. So if you were level seventy and you had all this you know, epic gear and stuff, and you're like, "Hey, look how much time and effort I put into this," you know, pay me X amount of money, I'll give you the, 
they, I, I mean, I guess that just goes to show how crazy it is um, when people put value on something or anything could have value. Right. Right. So yeah, the big thing, the big thing for me when it come to the the whole North Korea making money is I thought it was interesting to look at it from the perspective that, well, one, they operate this way because they had to financially support whatever they want to do. And cyber is a big revenue generator for them because of all the sanctions and things like that. It makes it hard to make money and do things. But it's also interesting because North Korea, even though their, their targeting is a little different, it still is considered a nation state, you know, level adversary because it's well-funded. And it's interesting to see the numbers put out like that, like how much money they gain, because you can kind of see how successful a well-funded cyber group can be when we don't have those types of numbers for other nation states, right? Because they're not necessarily trying to make money. They're trying to gain access. They're trying to gain information. They're trying to, you know, all the other things that their motivations are, you know, their whole point of their operation is very different. So it's hard to measure that way. But we can see North Korea, would say, is the most sophisticated. And you can see how much success they have. So I think it kind of paints a real picture for how capable a lot of a well-funded nation state level operators can be. So I think it makes, I think it's a good story, especially when you're trying to communicate to, you know, leadership and people that are less technical. Uh, if you're able to kind of make those parallels and say like, well, how threatening is if we were to say, you know, insert country name here and you can be like, well, nation states operate at a very high level. Here's an example of one that we can measure in dollars. Um, as far as their success goes. So try to translate that to if they really want to just gain access, how successful are they going to be? Right. Very good points. Replace money with anything. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think that was what was really cool about the narrative. I know they really wanted to like highlight, like, look how much money they made, how much money was lost. But, you know, I thought it was more interesting to look at it from, uh, well, how do they compare and contrast to other people that we can't measure? Um, and I'm, you know, in my head and experience, I kind of know where they shake out, you know, amongst their peers or whatever y'all call them. But, uh, but yeah, it's just interesting. That is very, very interesting. Uh, big picture perspective pool. Um, but will 2024 be the year they break a billion dollars? I don't know. It's a good question. Very good question. Let's hope not. <laughs> All right. What's next? So, um, this next one was a report. Report um, from Clear Sky Sec, and they were covering where an Iranian APT hit targets in Albania um, with what they dubbed the No Justice Wiper. Um, and it was just kind of interesting because it was another one of those write-ups that I find interesting, but it's really hard to apply some of the information because they do the whole Ida, you know, decompile the code, see what the code actually does on a system and how it interacts with the system and things like that. And that's not always desirable from an operational standpoint. Um, there's a lot we can learn and it, it's really good for Intel people too, because you can maybe tie malware to who the authors are, where they, where it originates, things like that. But, you know, it, what was really interesting was some of the things we've talked about before that I immediately stand out. And like I said, when I look at reports like this, especially when they get really detailed, you know, I, I really try to focus on well, what's, what are the key things that I might use? Um, first, you know, the targeting is always interesting. Obviously it was uh, very clearly going after the state and just in infrastructure and things like that. Cause they hit telecom, they hit mobile telecom airlines and parliament. So the government areas, uh, 
and when the malware ran, what they were able to see when they were analyzing, which is interesting, and the wiper worked so well that it basically just blue screened um, the computer. But and what they were able to see was basically the C drive disappear. So they'd be they, you know they'd sit there and boom, C drive disappear, then blue screen. Probably when something went in memory was executing some other next task and it went to reach out to something that didn't exist anymore and just died. But one of the things that was interesting with the wiper was there was a single character PowerShell script. <laughs> I remember I always talk about single character everything. Um, it, it was just p.ps1. And that was what started the whole pulling down uh, the wiper and other such things. Um, they didn't mention some of the uh, variables and function calls that were used in there. So if you actually have um, script block logging enabled, you would be able to see that. And you might be able to build some detections. The only um, caveat there is um, those things are really easy to, to change the names of um, the function names or the variables they or parameters they use. So be cognizant of that. But you know you'd have visibility specifically to what was being run. Uh, but another thing was out of the payloads they pulled down, um, other than the wiper, they pulled down some other things. And one was the an uh, executable, the plink, which is this kind of a part of putty, which gives you kind of that remote connection and access type things. Um, and they renamed it to one.exe. So another single character exe. So, you know, especially when you, you know, when I think about, you know, why do people use a single characters? Obviously it's just human behavior, but then I also thought I had another spin on this one too, because if you're doing a wiper, you're expecting to move really fast. Um, and you don't really care about what you do other than kind of what your impact is. So it would make more sense to drive someone to just name things single character because it's not going to exist for very long and it's just supposed to get wiped anyways. Um, but that also makes me think that that would also be a very great um, kind of detection or maybe even prevention. Just don't allow, you know, if you're able to configure like I don't want single character scripts or executables to run unless it's explicitly allowed. You know, you immediately this wiper wouldn't work. Um They'd have to then do some things. And it didn't sound like they had necessarily remote access all the time. Um, it sounded like it was just a payload that ran and did this. So, that I mean, that would be a good defense. And they did mention that they do believe that, um, obviously, anything that is anti-Iranian uh, or Iran, they expect this campaign to hit other targets other than Albania. So... Um, so yeah, those are, wasn't a lot to pull out, but I think those are some key characteristics that would be very effective in either identifying or even if you can put those types of prevention in place, just outright putting you know that stopgap in there. So what you think? No, I, I agree that. Well, first of all, I, I'm pretty sure you just Google Intel reports that involve uh, yeah. single character. <laughs> I think I figured out finally. Um, now this was, this was pretty interesting. Um, like you said, they saw the blue screen in death when they ran dynamic analysis, which, um, like you say, it's a wiper and that tells researchers and that tells us really what the goals are. It's not like things got encrypted and then it broke on accident. Um, you know, if they go straight to deleting a C drive, that that's for impact. That's not for, um, 
later usage, right? They're kind right. of hoping that. Um, but I, I really did like the details, um, especially when it came to the details or how detailed they explained things for this report. Like, why was this used, especially when it came to the IDAPRO and the static analysis? Because, um, you know, that's something I'm still trying to get better at. Um, but they take it chunk by chunk, which really helps me. And, and even from static analysis, there are some things that you can pull, um, some, you know, artifacts can pull from if they're static in there. Um, but then, and then through the PowerShell analysis, they did a really good job um, with explaining the functions, how the script was executed, uh, and so on. But I, I, of course, I saw the single file characters and it explained everything. Um, but yeah, it, it was really a really interesting write-up, and I, I really enjoyed it. Cool. So what do you got next? Next up is... Got to find my Safari. Um, this was a um, an article uh, by Uptix. Now, they uh, they found the use of the Remcos rat, or Remcos rat was being used um, by I think against Ukraine. They said UAC dash zero zero five zero threat group, um, but. They were using the Remco's rat to, you know, um, where they had a politically motivated agenda, uh, especially with what uh, what's going on still in Russia and Ukraine. Um, but just to give a quick idea of what the attack looked like, it started with an LNK file that led to an HTA um, file being dropped. Uh, then it had a uh, VBS or the HTA file had a VBS script in it, and then it led to PowerShell. So there's a lot of um, or what I've been seeing, or maybe it's just because I'm paying attention more or that I'm noticing more, that LNK files are being used more for, uh, which, which are basically shortcut files. Um, they're being used for execution. Um, now, I don't know if that leads to because uh, some organizations allow it or it's something that is commonly uh, ignored. But either way, uh, I'm really noticing LNK files being um, used a lot. Now, also, there's a there's another technique that is used here um, is forms of masquerading. Um, so when the power or after the the chain or the ex execution chain leaves the PowerShell, it downloads a malicious payload named word underscore update dot exe. Now, that alone doesn't work. I know it's not very, it doesn't scream masquerading, but if you are uh, an, an, a standard end user and you see that and you're expecting an update or whatever the case may be, like if that's within the time frame of you using Word or restarting your computer or logging on for the first time uh, in the new year, thinking that work had been done or updates had been pushed, you, you know, being a useful <clears throat> or being a helpful person, you might run word update.exe and just seems comfortable. It seems safe, but that leads to uh, the Remco's route actually executing uh, and getting into the memory. Something else it does is that it um, gathers information regarding the antivirus products installed on the computer. Um, then it verifies 
if the display name corresponds to Windows Defender. Uh, and if so, it proceeds to replace the term with an empty string. Um, so that I, I thought that was an interesting um, that they would take away the name whatsoever. Um, just, I don't know. I don't know if that's like just hiding the service completely or no one knows what's going on or, you know, um, yeah, I didn't quite understand what was the significance there other than they, they were changing how things would look based on the endpoint or EDR. Yeah, at first I, I, I thought that they renamed whatever antivirus product was on there. Mm -hmm. But then I had to read it like three times and realize like, no, they're just leaving an empty name, which I'm glad you're confused too uh, because that means my confusion is justified. Uh, <laughs> But then it goes on. There's a and there's just all these different uh, techniques being used. Um, obfuscation or they they obfuscated code. Um, but once again, the the team was very successful and um, skilled in decoding this. Uh, it was Base sixty four, and they go through the uh, go through the article just to explain what it does. So there was the decryptor uh, form of payload, and, and so on. But they. What I really enjoy is they sh shared screenshots of execution. They sh shared screenshots of code. Um, and then, of course, the things that stick out to me or the artifacts that stick out to me were things like it was uh, landing in the Windows startup directory. Um, so uh, anything that lands in app data roaming, Microsoft, Windows, start menu, program, startup, you know, that, that just tells me that there's persistence being used as well. Um, so they dropped an LNK file in there so that every time this user logged on, that LNK file executed pretty much to make sure that the Remco's rat was uh, staying in memory because once you turn it off, um, if it's not persistent in memory, then it needs to be executed again. Um, which, once again, it just shows the uh, the forward thinking of the adversary, but also the successful use of techniques that are documented and well-known, but are still being successful. So when it comes to persistence or hunting for persistence, the first thing I always think of uh, is registry key modification with the the Windows uh, run registry key. I think of services, I think of scheduled tasks, and I think of files that exist in this directory or the Windows startup directory. Um, it's just a very common thing that the adversary uses over and over and over uh, to maintain a hold on your system and could also uh, provide easy wins. Uh, or if your organization likes to keep a lot of stuff in there, it could really uh, you know, make your job a little bit harder. Um, but what was your thoughts? Yeah, so I thought it was interesting, you know, you see these articles that talk about, oh, well, there's just new crazy sophisticated, you know, malware or technique and you know at first you kind of get excited like oh you know wow there's gonna be something that completely never seen before and everything they did has been seen before except for i don't know if, i'm sure it's been seen but them using an unnamed pipe to pass things to a legitimate uh command prompt um that was running from their you know word update executable that they create or whatnot um, so, but that's like good news, right? So, you know, looking at this, I was thinking, okay, so you've got an advanced adversary that's persistent 
has these really cool techniques, they still have to do things that are easily detectable. Um, and that's what's, you know, I always call the constraints of the environment, right? So, you know, if you're going to be attacking windows, there's only, you know, so many ways that are very common to execute things, make things persistent, do that. I mean, they're coming, I mean, new things come out, but when you start adding like all of them together, unless someone comes up with the new method and technique for every miter vertical, uh, you're pretty much going to see some something that's been seen before. And in this case, you know, the LNK file for phishing, you mentioned like, you know, that you wonder why that's commonly used. My thoughts there is one, it's small, so it's really easy for an attachment, you know, to get through any kind of filtering for attachment sizes. Um, two, you know, a lot of the stuff they would have to scan is what's being executed, but a lot of things are being executed are common calling um, common things like, uh, MSHTA or CMD or PowerShell or whatever um, that are on the system itself. So it's not like calling anything that's not known, um, but then that does something. So I think it's just like that obfuscated uh, execution uh, that you're kind of seeing is, well, you, you see there's going to be something wrong, but nothing that's not, you know, from the system or outside the system yet. So I think it gets past some of the email filtering stuff easier. Um, and then the EDR is supposed to really pick up. And that's where... Um, I thought it was, you know, you see this a lot uh, where there's a lot of this, I call it uh, script chaining, where you see something like um, MSHTA, PowerShell, CMD, WScript, CScript. There's this long execution chain where they're kind of executing each other to pass different things because people know how to get around certain detections to perform some actions and then they pass something on to something else to do other actions. Um, but it's not a common execution because they're all really powerful executing methods uh, that when you put them all together, it's it's suspicious a lot of times. And then, you know, they, there was a lot of base 64 encoding because there's a lot of obfuscation in general. And there's some really sophisticated obfuscation um, that was going on, but you still see some, you know, base 64 encoded PowerShell stuff. So it might be enough what they were doing to bypass um, automated detections and protections. But if you're looking for base 64 encoded executions, you should be able to see some of that if you have the right kind of logging visibility with PowerShell um, for sure. And then um, the persistence folder, that was a big thing that stood up or stood out. Uh, but then I was curious, and they didn't really talk to it too much, but obviously that um, unnamed pipe that basically is able to pass data to the legitimate um, CMD exe that they you know, start and run. Uh, I was curious if that was their way to leverage running things with CMD without seeing anything passing. Um, and the reason I bring that up is a lot of times when people look for CMD executions, you know, the command line only shows once on execution versus something's already running and then you're typing things in the terminal. It doesn't get logged the same. Um, you actually don't see any of that. And I wonder if that was their way to circumvent a lot of those detections from the command line. Uh, because now they're passing data kind of on the back end uh, that's not going to hit any of the logging for your standard uh, enumeration of the environment and things that people do from the command line in general. Uh, so, yeah, the purpose of that and, and what was being run, you know, kind of got me thinking about some of those things were kind of cool. But, yeah, that's uh, those are my highlights for the most part. That is a good point. Um, I also one call out that I forgot to mention was that I didn't. I always enjoy the articles where they point out, um, or describe what they're doing, 
um, like this one did, especially when they came down to the utilizing the cyber chef um, to decrypt the data. Oh yeah. Um, that, that's a tool I commonly use, but I mean, the fact that they gave it the shout out and then there's like, Hey, here's how we did it. It, it, it kind of adds a, a layer of trust, if you will, that it's not just a, here are the artifacts, um, look at them and trust us that they're accurate. They're like, this is how we found it, which I personally feel that for the community and the upcoming hunters in this, you know, the next generation, um, that really helps. Agreed. So what are you going to wrap this up with? Yeah. So this was just interesting. Um, not anything necessarily super technical, but you know, when I see things like this, I always kind of reflect on sometimes people that make decisions don't understand the problems. Um, and where I'm going with this is, uh, it was an article from the registrar and it was like ransomware, uh, payment ban and then wrong idea. Right. Uh, and then basically they're, they're, hitting on where they're starting to hear some opinions that, Hey, if we ban the payment of ransomware, then that'll solve the problem. And their article goes through why they're kind of against it. And I, I do agree as well, but you know, it is kind of scary because, you know, it's really easy to say, um, you know, well, if you stop paying ransomware, then they won't make money and, um, this won't be a problem. But when you start thinking about like an example, not pet you, you know, that was a ransomware that you couldn't pay. And Maersk, who is the big shipping company, they basically had to ship things for free or they would shut down world economies and supply chains and everything, right? And and that's an example where, hey, they didn't pay and they had to figure out how to recover and they actually lost, you know, money. I mean, they recently, you know, I guess got paid by some of the insurance based on the settlements. But... um you know, if they didn't handle it as well as they did and weren't lucky enough to have, uh, you know, a server on or offline when this hit to be able to help them rebuild everything, um, that could have been catastrophic to not just them. Right. And that's where I think, I think the article was trying to point out, like, you know, imagine hospitals, they were talking in 2023 ransomware hit 46 hospital systems, which, you know, in included 141 hospitals. Well, a hospital is hit by ransomware and there's potential life loss you know how can you say well don't pay the ransom right it's um kind of a, a sticking point and and you know it made me also think uh you know we have the policy in the u.s that we don't negotiate with terrorists right and i think it's a great stance but i think you have to know well what are the exceptions or you know what what does that really look like because that's the initial approach but there might be you know, circumstances, you know, for instance, that could change that. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I, I can, for people that don't understand the real risk for how things integrate together or what, you know, how you can affect world economies, like say critical infrastructures hit with ransomware. What is that? What does that do to destabilizing, destabilizing things? Um, so that whole, that the people that were talking about, well, don't pay ransomware, just don't pay. You know, I remember, you know, you know, to talk about when ransomware is coming out. I mean, that was kind of my first expect, you know, perspective is like, well, just stop paying them and it won't get as big because ransomware has grown since then. They weren't requesting as much money early on. They were just requesting something that was more tolerable. But now the numbers are getting astronomical because you're getting better at targeting and, and things like that. 
But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I kind of had that initial immature thought uh, as a security practitioner, like, well, yeah, if we don't pay then. Cause you know, that was the other thing too, is we're all like, well, how do you know they're going to decrypt it? Well, they proved they would. So um, they kept their business alive by actually following through with what they promised after, you know, they encrypt all your stuff. But you know, that's something uh, I thought was an interesting conversation piece. It, and it, concerning these ideas are floating around um, because people really have to understand what is the real risk to business versus what is the real risk to customers? What is the real risk to uh, um, tangent businesses and government entities and, and whatnot? There's, there's things aren't as simple as, you know, hey, well, they messed up. They'll take the hit. You know, they'll have to figure it out. There's, there's, it's more complex than that. So providing a simple answer like that sometimes um, scares me a little bit, depending on who's making those decisions. I, I, your lack of faith is kind of disturbing. That oh, yeah. I don't trust these decision makers to. Yeah. Um, no, we've talked about this before. And, and I'm sure my immature thought of stop using crypto is not the answer either. Um, but you're right. So, now, in my opinion, and this is all opinion, if this is if this is the government coming out and saying, "Hey, we're going to stop paying ransom," I think there needs to be something in place that will help aid these organizations in not paying. So, and and I don't like. Um, Sorry, I'm pausing to not get political. Well, I, I I like where you're kind of going with some of that. The one thing that I didn't think about that I think makes the problem worse is now that cyber insurance is a thing that most people are acquiring and it does help cover the cost of even in some cases potentially paying off some of the ransom. It makes it easier for people to pay or not care if they pay so it becomes a from a ransomware perspective it's great for them they're like hey if we hit people we don't have to worry about you know them potentially going bankrupt because they'd rather if they're going to go under they'd rather go under without paying us now they'll they'll pay us because they're paying us with someone else's money you know, essentially yeah and, and if, if something's going to be where they're like say they're uh providing backup solutions then what does that do for data retention what does that do for uh, you know any uh, regulations or governments where the, anyone's or you know the solution is well store your data over here so that if you do get ransomware you always have backups or every organization can have backups that just doesn't seem to scale either how are you going to look at every organization and say we'll help you provide backups so you don't have to pay still still a, a solution but doesn't seem to um, doesn't seem to work and. Like you said, that the the ransomware operators that are still operating are successful because they are actually decrypting stuff. Um, those who don't or aren't around anymore are probably because they got a bad rep on the uh, you know the dark web because hey they're not um, you know they're not decrypting or the key breaks or doesn't work. Uh, you know people will stop naturally or naturally stop paying that ransomware because if they know that it's this this strain or the group um you know they're they're not going to pay because they say well we're actually we're going to pay or not get our uh get our data back um and i think you've mentioned this before too whenever it comes to ransomware that 
things like these and decisions like these, I think will ultimately, and I'm going to say this, but it's not going to come out the way I want it, of course. But decisions like this is going to end ransomware, but not the way we want it to end. In my opinion, what would happen is that we're going to say we're not going to pay the ransom and the actors are just, or the threat actors or adversaries is going to say, okay, well, instead of, you know, instead of doing, a, um, oh man, it's a Monday, double extortion, um, we're just going to extort you for the data. We're going to, instead of worrying about you having to decrypt all your files to get them back, we're just not going to encrypt anything. We're just going to take all your information. So Which, now you have all your, inf now we have all your information. And you could pay us for that, or we could just leak it. Maybe, so, maybe decryption stops. Maybe it doesn't help, or maybe they stop putting, um, or you know, they maybe they stop encrypting things so businesses can still operate, but they still have that um, that chip to say, well, you know, you could pay us, or we're going to leak all your your customer data or your personal information or so on. Um, it, it yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Well, I can't speak to the, the ransomware group's behalf, but I think you bring up a good point where it started with ransom. Well, it started with extortion, right? That was the way people used to make money. And then it went to ransomware because it became easier, right? And then extortion came back into the picture, and some people just assumed because they can make more money. But I think it's because people were better at recovering from ransomware. Probably. So if we're getting better at recovering from ransomware for the companies that take it serious and have the way to invest or configure and do whatever they need to do to protect themselves, that's why extortion is coming back. So it's not that because we're paying them that they are, you know, sticking around necessarily because they're, they're bringing in more ways to make money. And I think that has to reflect off of well, what isn't working for them initially? Because it's a lot of effort for them to collect data, and a lot of chances to get caught while they're collecting data because they can't rant, they can't encrypt everything before they collect it, right? So there's all that time to pull all that data, and then they gotta host it somewhere, and then they gotta do all this extra support and services for managing how they're gonna release that, all that kind of stuff. That's a lot of work on them that they would want to take if ransomware just worked out right. You know what I mean? So. That's true. So, yeah, I mean, because you got to think that these people are, they're trying to make money. And your whole point is, yeah, we stop paying, they won't make money, they'll go away. This is true. Uh, but obviously, there's some things we're doing that are working. Uh, it's just, I think what we need to do is the targets that are getting hit are the ones that are um, a lot of times poorly funded in some aspects. You know, healthcare, there's not, a, I don't think there's always a ton of cyber investment in healthcare. You know, it's because they're, they're more about how do we do better healthcare, not how we do necessarily cyber. Or when you look at like school systems, that was another topic they brought up. You know, they're getting hit a lot. That's very poorly funded, especially you go to the public school systems, K through 12. Um, you know, these are where maybe the government, if they want to fix things, if they're if we're going to make decisions, we need to figure out how to have better resources to help people with not the... You know, it's not about throwing the money. Maybe it's just the talent or guidelines, or if you're going to configure, here's the here's the baseline, and this is how you install it. I mean, they have some of those resources already, and they need to make people aware of them. But I think you know those are better approaches because they make everyone better than it is about just saying we want this problem to go away. 
Um, and that's the other thing I always hate when people, if, if they were to become a law, there's, you know, when people create laws that think they solve the problem, what I hate about those types of laws is they stop trying to solve them and they stop thinking about them. It just gets it off front and center. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh yeah, we, we pass a law. It's, it's done. It's like, no, there's still more to be done there. But because you pass that kind of, you know, provision now you're going to stop worrying about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, this is not going to solve the problem. <laughs> right, yeah. No, I mean, it might create, it might upset some people and, on both sides. Um, and then the, there'll be problems that continue to, to go on. So, yeah. Just outlaw uh, ransomware completely. Yeah, if you just made that illegal, then the problem will go away. Wait a second, it is illegal. Okay, well, problem still exists. What about uh, encryptors that? Anything yeah, anything? we had yeah we had no encryption. It would be fine, right? That's well, that's what they want. We didn't text everything. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's always like I said, it's always interesting to see opinion pieces like this sometimes. And I, I did like where the registrar um, sat on it uh, as far as the side goes. Uh, but it's good to be thinking about these types of problems um, for how others outside the field might be thinking about it, right? Because that could impact you in some way and, and got to make sure that you understand both sides of the argument and why one side is more important than the other in some cases. So, so it was a very, very good article. I, I, I appreciate it. Cool. So I think that closes us out. So uh, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 8, 2024. Happy hunting, everyone. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.